It has been a few weeks since we've been in Acts. You know, we had a Christmas sermon and then two weeks in Ephesians. All similarly looking at the same theme. And so as we begin back in our text in Acts, let us just at first get situated in the context to what's going on. As we begin in verse 19, if you look there, it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled, and then it names a number of places. Acts, at this very point in time, is referencing back to Acts chapter 7, where Stephen preached his wonderful sermon, which spans 40-something verses, and then he is stoned. And from that, you remember, everybody except for the apostles left Jerusalem. It was a church flight in that regard. And so this is being hearkened to because in the intervening chapters, we have a bunch of scripture related to one central theme that we've been looking at, namely the unity of the church in Jesus Christ. And what had happened in those intervening pages is that Christ is preached to Cornelius and a number of Gentiles who gather in his house. They are expecting the word of the Lord for their salvation. And so Peter preaches to them. The Holy Spirit, as in Pentecost, falls and grants the gift of of tongues. And then they partake in Christian baptism. After all of this, Then we have a retelling of an event that happened previously to Peter. We see that there was a a heavenly vision of a sheet coming down and all sorts of birds and beasts and creepy crawlies, as I like to call them. And Peter says, no, I don't eat that kind of stuff. I'm kosher. And the Lord says, well, I made it. You eat it. Feast. And so... He understands at that point that God has not made distinctions between any peoples. Jesus has become the Lord of all, Lord of Jews and of Gentiles. So they're not to be distinguished between as it was in the pages of the Old Testament. And yet the ones in this verse, in verse 19, had not experienced any of that. At Jerusalem, they had been scattered abroad. They hadn't read along. Uh, Obviously, this is written later. They hadn't been reading along like we have of the events in the interim. All they knew is that the Lord Jesus has come, and he has come as the Messiah of Israel. And so we're told about this segment of people and how their practice was, as they went about, they only spoke to Jews. Why would they do this? Well, I already said one, but we recognize that their practice was to make a hard distinction between Jews and everybody else we call Gentiles. So just as Peter before was taught not to do, they hadn't yet been taught to do. They were in need of further clarification of what the gospel means and the practical implications thereof. So these Jewish Christians, having not received any of that, then obviously acted in accordance with the knowledge that they did have, separating one from the other and operating off a different model. And you can understand, just as 
we all understand if you only have part of the information, then your conclusion probably will not be correct. They are operating off limited understanding. However, we ourselves can stand in their place very easily. We all, having gotten a little bit older this year, look back on our lives and go, if I would have known this, I wouldn't have done that. And this is the place that they stand. They don't know this, and so they do that. Their thinking goes something like this. It's not illogical. It's just only part of the story. Their logical order at the time goes something like, well, Jesus is the Messiah, and thusly he's the king of the Jews, as it is said over his cross. Therefore, the gospel is for Jews. So if Gentiles want to be saved, just as they did in the Old Testament at times, they must first join themselves to the Jews through the sign of circumcision in the Old Covenant. You can see Galatians playing this out. This is the pattern of thought that was had, though they have a missing premise. What is that? Hopefully we've solidified this a little bit over the past three weeks, but there is a monumental change that we've been trying to appreciate. We live 2,000 years after this time, and so sometimes it's hard for us to appreciate it. That's why we spend so much time focusing on it. But as the new covenant comes, there is a shift and a distinction on the pattern of how God's people are related to him, how salvation is administered as it were. This new covenant consists in our participation in Christ's broken body and shed blood. Thus, although there is only one Messiah, Jesus, that is, there is only one Christ, he is Lord regardless of nation, tribe, or tongue. Instead of being joined to the Jewish nation, as it was in the Old Testament through circumcision, now we have been taught by the apostle in Ephesians chapter 2, as we looked at, or here in Acts in narrative form, two different ways of communicating the same message. We have learned that now we are united to Christ and therefore united to the Jewish people. Not, not, not the other way, united to the Jewish people and therefore to God's salvation. <clears throat> we are united to Christ and the new humanity that is in him. There is an old man that has fallen into sin and the new man Jesus has come and we are one in him, Jew and Gentile alike. So Paul can say in Romans chapter 2, 29, that uh, the true Jew is this. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. That's a new way of experiencing God and a different way of the external signs thereof, not by lineage, but by being born again being united to the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> That's verse 19, as we hear one group of people go in 
preach this way. But yet, at the same time, there's still another group who, in a surprising fashion, not having read chapters 10 and 11 with us, now go out and do something different than those in verse 19. Look at verse 20 with me. It says, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. It literally just means Greeks, which is non-Jewish Greek speakers, essentially. It's how the terminology works. Also preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So, So their actions are different. They are in line with Chapters 10 and 11, though they had, as of yet, did not hear this. Why did they act differently? Why did they not exclusively reserve the gospel for the Jewish nation and preach to the Greeks? Maybe they had been taught what was shown to us in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus commanded that the witnesses... That is the the twelve and those uh, in the upper room who gather together would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Maybe they had heard that previously. However, <clears throat> I submit to you that another possibility, and I think more likely considering the way that Luke lays this out, I, I submit to you that none of these men had a specific quotation in mind. Rather, they had the story of the Old Testament in their hearts. They intuitively knew the shape of redemption and what they were to come and expect. Think of it as just one example. A faithful Jew has what as his prayer and songbook? The Psalms. He would have grown up as a boy, if we're talking about a little Jewish boy, would have grown up praying and singing the Psalms. And no doubt there are certain chapters which he would have come to love deeply. At any point in our house, you can hear my boys and my daughter sing Psalm 2 in a couple different versions because they absolutely love the, the Psalm. And this is one of the Psalms that if one gravitated towards, they would have understood that the nations belong to the Messiah. Freddie, can you just start Psalm 2? Why do the heathen nations rage? Can you do it? Or are you too nervous? <laughs> Good boy. Now, we could sing the whole song for you. Good job, Elias. Um, but we have this song on repeat in our heads. It, it, it doesn't have to be on music or anything. It's just in our hearts. And this psalm in, uh, in, in chapter 2, verse 7 of the Psalms says this. The nations come, or the song that I've memorized. The nations come, you are the only heir. The ends of the earth will be your own possession. And we've learned from Peter in Acts chapter 2 that he has said this psalm is fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus sits at the right hand of God according to Psalm 110. Part of it's fulfilled. Not all enemies are made a footstool of his feet. But in that psalm we are taught that God says to Jesus, who we know is the resurrected Lord, and Psalm 2 says, Ask of me for your inheritance. And I'll make the nations them. 
So if a little boy had this as his theme song, he sung it over and over, prayed in light of it before the Christ had come. When he came, he would know that the nations are also Christ's. And therefore, there's no gospel only for the Jews. It is for all the peoples of the world. So intuitively, they know that although they're not connecting the analytical dots, okay, Psalm 2, this says this, they understand that the shape of redemption looks like when Christ reigns, the nations become his. They knew themselves, in this sense, to be ambassadors of the kingdom of God and heralds of the mended world. I knew you'd like that, Freddie. How do we know? How do we know <clears throat> that these things are right? What they did, the second group rather than the first group. One group proclaimed the gospel to only Jews, the other made no distinction and proclaimed the gospel to all. How do we know that was right, other than? You know, what we've looked at in the past and the fact that we're Gentiles sitting here right now. Uh, We know that because verse 21, read it here with me. It says, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And we could say, and therefore a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So in verse 21, as they spread the good news to the peoples of the nations, the Lord, by his almighty power, attends the preaching of the word. This is the divine stamp of approval that this is God's will. This is the right application for the, Christ, for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the Messiah and the kingdom of God. Since the Lord's hand has moved, therefore, a great number came to faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus. And this is all that I want to share with you in the text today as it relates to looking at what it says, explaining its meaning, and understanding it. Now, what I want to do from here to the rest of the sermon is spend... 20 minutes or so applying this related to evangelism and applying this to, um, well, I'll I'll, I'll cover it as we go. First, we must ask, what is the gospel that they were preaching? At its core, although we could say many things related to the gospel, the gospel is the news that centers on Christ's person and work, namely in his death and resurrection. The creed which we recited today has a, if you heard it, a quotation of 1 Corinthians 15, I think verse 3, which says, I deliver to you of uh, the things of first importance, the first important things, namely Christ, his death and his resurrection. In summary, that is the gospel is Christ Jesus. It is not first and foremost or primarily a message that has to do with me. We are included in the benefits that come. It's not, uh, the gospel is not me being freed from sin. The gospel is not me uh, experiencing adoption or justification. 
those things attend as benefits of the gospel. The gospel, at its core, is Christ Jesus. If somebody knows who he is, all the benefits flow from him. It's not like these things can be removed, but the order is important. I delivered to you of what is of first importance, Christ, his death, his resurrection, according to the scriptures. And those who heard about the message of Christ are those who are able to turn, to actually turn from their thoughts or their ways to God and trust in the Christ who is given for them. Now, at first, when we think about evangelism, I want to do some confutation. This means to refute a point. So I want to formally refute, just briefly, a poor doctrine of mankind because it often plagues us in our understanding of evangelism. Evangelism simply is to share the gospel of Christ in order to convert as it is here, the nations, sharing to the Greeks as they did there, or for us to the other Americans in our midst, or whoever might be here streaming across the borders. Sort of a joke and sort of not a joke, excuse me. Confutation. First, we know, hopefully, uh, the famous section of Ephesians chapter 2, which says that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, following the devil, like all of mankind. A a devastating critique on mankind. And this Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, teaches very clearly, as many other places, that the fall of mankind has brought us down so hopelessly into sin that we have absolutely no resource in ourselves to escape. We have no remedy, no help that we can contribute to our fallen estate. In fact, man is likened to the dead. He does nothing at all. Though one might object, the ones here do all sorts of things. Deadness, as it relates to the scripture, is deadness towards God, desiring who he is and what he's about. And thus it is applied to Christ. Men are dead in sin. They cannot do anything of any value or contribute or participate in their being made right with God or spiritually alive. They are not even able to believe the gospel that is preached to them by us. How do we know this? Well, the implications of this are taught by Jesus himself in a wonderful passage Jesus has a, you can go through this all in your own time, in John chapter 6, there's a lengthy section where there's a huge massive group of people who've traveled across the sea to come and see Jesus. For all intents and purposes, it would look like there's a lot of people ready to believe in Jesus, yet he calls them out as unbelievers and insists on teaching something that eventually at the end of the chapter drives them all away. What did he teach? Well, he could not help himself. He just had to teach them over and over and over again. In John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And then the promise comes and I will raise him up on the last day. Throughout the whole passage, Jesus clearly explains that coming to Jesus is essentially just an analogy for believing in him. So Jesus teaches 
deadness as a biblical category means and includes that we ourselves have an inability to exercise saving faith. Devastating. Man is not wounded in sin, but completely dead. This means that our persuasions in evangelism can never be so skillful that we can make the dead come alive. The credit in this regard cannot go to us, but to God alone, who does the work of making a dead sinner alive. This is what the Reformed mean by the term in the five solas, grace alone. Not grace alone in an autonomous act of faith, not decreed by God, which most of our Arminian friends believe. Uh, go to any Calvary chapel, uh, staunch Arminian there, you'll find them saying grace alone and then teaching that, except that faith part. <clears throat> grace alone. And the means is faith once the dead sinner is raised to life. But we must not fall off the horse. I think most of us at this point are very solid in this understanding that God alone saves. Man is no help at all. The flesh is no help at all. It is the spirit that makes alive. So in that, some of us can hear the wrong thing. I, I think... However many times I've communicated the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation, people at the end of a, a clear presentation of just what the scripture says in this regard, hear me in such a way to say, that means you don't do anything. <laughs> don't share the gospel, as I think what people hear, which is very, very incorrect. <clears throat> God's ultimate determinations, which happen in eternity, of which he is the creator of all of them, come to us through a means called providence. You have a great chair underneath your rear supporting you, ultimately because God determined it from eternity. That's why it's there. However, he brought these things about in history by his most Holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all of his creatures and all of their actions, says the Baptist Catechism that we've recited. In this case, God, and in the case of evangelism, God has decreed, or in the case of the chairs, excuse me, let me get there in a second. In the case of the chairs, he's decreed that the elders would be the instruments to accomplish his will even though it is the case that we act upon the desires of our hearts. Somebody liked the gray theme and picked the gray chairs, liked the comfort and all that sort of stuff. The means were us, yet the ultimate reason, the ultimate cause is God. And we are secondary to that, though not unimportant. We are actually important because God has chosen us and not others to be the means. See? Now, we should know in regards to evangelism and what we must truly hold tight is that God has determined for his elect people, ordained for salvation from before the foundation of the world, are to come to faith, not in eternity when they don't exist, and not before they're born, but at some point in their lives 
through the means that God has determined, namely preaching the gospel of Christ. Or in this case, you know, even as my testimony goes, reading about the gospel of Christ Jesus. Therefore, we ought to explain the news, first of all, as it's commanded of us. And second of all, knowing that God is glorified to make us sharers, participants in the means whereby he is to bring salvation to your family, to your friends, to your coworkers, neighbors, etc., to the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world, and this he will accomplish by his sovereign plan. <clears throat> now, as I've confuted some errors, let us have some consolation from the scriptures by way of application. It, it is great comfort to know what the disciples experienced here is the universal experience of salvation for each and every believer. God has never saved a single person. Well, I, t- I take that. Well, no, no, I can say this. <laughs> um, there's one person who is saved uh, directly, by, or two people who are saved directly by God, but he communicated his word to them. But God, <clears throat> by and large, in all of human history, uh, saves and only saves through his word. He, he saves not a part from the promises he makes of salvation. So Adam and Eve themselves received the promise of redemption in the curse itself, that one of your children, one of your offspring will come and crush the head of the serpent. This was their salvation, contained by believing in this promise of God for them. Similarly, for us, Every single one of us will be used or there will be some human means, whether it be the authors of Scripture themselves or you telling somebody else what the authors of Scripture and the Holy Spirit ultimately has said, what God has said in his word. You will be used or I will be used or another in the church will be used. Even false teachers will be used to bring the truth of Christ to somebody else. And what the exhortation is to us is to be the means by which that happens. <clears throat> now, this word is our real comfort here. The hand of the Lord was with them. I love that. It's not always the terminology, but the hand of the Lord was with them, which means that the power of the Spirit is present and active to guide their speech on the one hand, and on the other hand, to make sinners alive, to make them come up to spiritual life such that they then have the capacity to turn and trust in Christ. Purpose yourselves to speak the gospel and know, because this is our universal experience, that the hand of the Lord is with you. That's God's intention for your evangelism, not to leave you by yourself. Where might we find that in Scripture? A place that most of us have down by heart, which is the Great Commission, as Jesus is resurrected, standing on the mount, and he's looking over Jerusalem, and beyond there, he says, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make or disciple the nations, baptize them, and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Lo, as the King James says, or behold, I am with you, even to the ends of the age. Really, the ends of the earth, the ends of all things. The promise, not only for the first disciples, but also for us, is when you share the gospel, the hand of the Lord will be with you. It's great comfort. You don't have to fret. Use the truth you know. Talk about Christ, his resurrection, his death on behalf of sinners. Now, um, let us apply this now, not just to confuting false doctrine or comfort for ourselves, but also in duty. We need to understand Since this is 2,000 years later that I speak, we need to understand how we are to emulate this pattern. Because this pattern is laid out for us to show, well, there's, there's a bad pattern and there's a good one. And the good one is to spread the gospel abroad, as we have heard. And so I'm going to make seven applications now to that end so that you might be stirred up to doing these things. First, share the unadulterated gospel. In light of what I've just said, we must remember that God determines to make known a particular truth. And the content of that truth, he has determined and he has created. It is our job to not be like many today who think that the message needs a little help. It looks a little antiquated, and so therefore we need to freshen it up a little bit. It, it's a little harsh, and so we need to soften it a little bit. It, it is a little too narrow anymore these days, so we need to broaden out the message to let more in. No, we must determine to be grateful and happy about the truth of Christ and never be ashamed of it. Share it as it is, because really we're sharing about truth himself. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That is the truth that we must share. If we cover over the truth, I'm not saying you can't contextualize it so that people understand, clear, That's different than covering over aspects of it. Because what you're doing is you're covering over aspects of Jesus. You're covering aspects over death, resurrection, and things of this nature. Let us serve it up 100 proof without additives from a cocktail or altering it by watering it down on the rocks. (laughs) Secondly, develop a 90 second, because I couldn't do it in 60 seconds. I'm not going to call you to do it. Develop a 90-second presentation of the gospel. Sit down with your Bible and a piece of paper and write down all the things that people need to know in order to come to know Christ Jesus truly. What would comprise that list? Could you just say, Jesus died to save sinners? Well, they must know who Jesus is, right? Well, who is Jesus? See, just a man. Is he just an example for us, or is he the God-man, eternally begotten of the Father? These things, write down. 
And you could even use, well, I'll get to that later. Third, prove after you've done this. Then I want you to prove and expound. When you've written down all those things, a summary version, which is a 90-second version, of the message of the gospel, then I want you to write down key places in the scriptures which demonstrate and prove what you are saying. See, these things are your own words, and so then you want to back them up in scripture. A lot of people can say, this is in scripture, (laughs) and it's really not. What you should have in front of you is also chapter and verse references. This is what I'm saying. Here's your reference. I can quote it. And I can show you in the book, because ultimately we want them to know not what we say, because it's not our message. It is God's message, and therefore we want to point to God's words as they come to us. Further, you must be able to explain these things, in other words, and in more detail. So so why did Christ have to die? You might encounter a question like that, or... Or you might actually, even in our day, with people who've made peace with death and think it's just like some sort of okay thing. Now, you might have to explain to them why death is not so good. Uh, Surprising that we might have to explain that, but you will. Fourthly, you ideally should memorize. You should memorize. Fourthly, Do your best to memorize this presentation that you've made and the scripture references, both for your own soul, so you can recite the gospel to yourselves every single day, and for others, their soul depends on it. God has made it dependent on the words of others, speaking his word and his truth. If your practice becomes reciting these truths every day, even bits of it, and reading through these things as you sit down for your Bible reading time individually or as a family, then before you'll know it, you'll be ready in any second to share that 90 seconds of of, uh, scripture recitation and, and gospel presentation. And you'll be able to elaborate on it at ease um, and at length because it's in your heart. You've fixed it firmly. You've said it so many times, it's like inscribed on your soul. This is where we ought to be concerning these things. We should not be fumbling to go when it comes to the center of our faith and what the gospel is. Fifthly, an exhortation. Don't leave it to others. Don't leave it to others. Since no one will be saved apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ... No desert tribe in a far-off land will be saved apart from the word of God. Therefore, don't make the mistake of assuming somebody else is going to do this for us. We, there's billions of people who don't know who Christ is. And there's billions of people who, who have heard the name of Christ but still don't know who he is. They've been taught a false Christ. They've been taught, taught another Christ. Or they've only vaguely heard about who he is. Don't assume that this is somebody else's job. This is your job description as a Christian. I don't know if you knew this, but when you profess faith in Christ, you also began to witness about who he is. I believe in Jesus. That's your first task of evangelism. Your own testimony about Jesus. And then from there, you don't assume that the billions of other people 
<clears throat> are in contact with other Christians and, and that's their duty to share with them. Make it your job. Now, <clears throat> I want to offer you two other exhortations or really uh, call to resources. You might have um, a difficult time with this in, in your preparation yourself. And, and so, therefore, you have two wonderful resources. First, you have a pastor resource. You have a pastoral resource. Recently, we've done a handful of classes on this and discussed these things together in Sunday school, though I recognize that we might have lingering questions. And since there might be more training needed personally and individually, you are free and able and your pastors are more than willing to come alongside you and give you specific existence or uh, existence. (laughs) Not that word. (laughs) Assistance. Uh, You you have uh, we have time and can provide good, helpful answers so that you might be personally equipped by a pastoral resource in your very own church. Secondly, you have paper resources that we've handed out to you. There is a published resource, which you all have. It's on the entry table here, the 1689, which is a systematic and brief, believe it or not, brief summary of the Christian Message with tons of references to the scripture. You don't actually have to do a whole lot of work yourself. Just go to Christ the Mediator in that chapter, and you pretty much have your presentation, <clears throat> though you would like to put it in your own words. If you talk like people did in 1689, uh, you will sound uh, you'll sound very intelligent, but but people might not understand what you're saying. And so you have that. You also have a succinct summary of the gospel and what we're confessing in the Nicene Creed, or even shorter than that, about half the size. Maybe I want to, I should probably count the words, maybe 80 words or something like that. You have the gospel in short in the Apostles' Creed, which you can find in in lots of hymnals. Uh, I'm not sure if the red one is or the one at your house. You can find it. So those are two separate tracks of resources for doing these things. Now, let me end on this and and wrap up. We should ask the question, if we take those seven things or at least some of those and, and make them a reality, what's the result of this hard work? Why should we do it? Encourage me, Fred. How might I be encouraged to do the task? This is more application as it were, but you'll see here, as we've explained before in verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and therefore a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This rejoicing can be yours. This is something that Barnabas turns around and he is filled with great joy. This is the cure to the sads, as it were, is to share the gospel about who Christ is, whatever the outcome. And we know that if the nations are Jesus's, so are many of the people yet unsaved at this current moment in time. You might come to great rejoicing by communicating faith in Christ. This is how Christ builds his church in a global fashion. And this is actually 
as we'll see here in this next week, though we're not going to share now, this is actually how the church gets truly new members. We've had a bunch of new members here in in the past few years, uh, but you guys are transplants by and large, I believe. You're, you are already part of the body of Christ somewhere else. It is a distinct and great joy to see others join to the church who don't call themselves and can't name the name of Christ the way that you can. This is how you might be encouraged. We ought to seek to fill our pews insofar as the hand of the Lord is with us, with those who have been converted for the very first time, new and fresh disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his plan. This is what he will accomplish. Be a part of that glorious task. And since we need his help, let us pray to this end together.